0: Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast, because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and please visit our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. Check out our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. As always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from theirishstory.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish HistoryPod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it. And we're so grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. Just to say as well, John has set up a Patreon for The Irish Story and it's the first time we've tried to monetize the podcast and the Irish Story website. So there will be a link in the show notes and we really would appreciate if you would consider donating to it as well. It would really help us. So thank you very, very much. Now on this episode, we're going to be looking at the Irish Civil War and commemorating the Irish Civil War. We have started the commemoration process since the start of the summer with the shelling at Four Courts and it should go on now until the end of the centenary of the Civil War, which will be in next summer. But there's a lot of interesting things that have come up in terms of the Civil War and in terms of commemoration, because it's not just commemorating the Civil War. It's also the end of the whole decade of centenaries too. So John, what do you think of all that?
1: First of all, yeah, it's good to be back. Carl. It's been a little while. Well, this is the first podcast
0: we've done together since October of last year. Unfortunately, I've been working nights and also having small kids as well. I haven't been able to do many episodes and you've been Picking up the slack, but unfortunately, we haven't got many episodes out over the last year or so. Not as many as we did in the previous year, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully, we'll this will be the start of getting more done on a more regular basis.
1: As regards, yeah, 2022. It's obviously the centenary of a lot of very nasty events in Ireland a hundred years ago. As most Irish listeners will be aware, you know, the Irish Revolution, as we call it these days, ended on a sour note. So it ended with the partition of the country first of all into two states and then civil war in the south of Ireland over the treaty not necessarily over partition as I'm sure we'll discuss but it's been notable I think Cahill and you might agree with me here that the centenaries of the actual setting up of the Irish Free State so in a way the centenary of our independence had been very muted like there's really very little commemoration of it. Yeah absolutely like we were talking earlier
0: about obviously we have something to compare The Civil War commemorations too, because there's been so many commemorations over the last few years. Really starting with this period where you have, like, you know, the home real crisis from 1912 to 1914, you have the 1913 lockout, the 1916 Easter Rising, the Tan War, the War of Independence, the Anglo-Irish War, whatever you want to call it, and the creation of Northern Ireland and the Government of Ireland Act. And now we have the treaty and leading on from the treaty, the Civil War. So it's interesting to compare them as a whole and separately as different commemorations.
1: Yeah, I mean, this year, it seems to me that, you know, the government and RTE and the main media were relatively comfortable with commemorating the treaty debates, you know, of well, December 1921 to January 1922. And there was quite a lot of that. I mean, there was pseudo news reports on the TV. There was documentaries. There was a lot of coverage of the treaty debates and so on. And there was also coverage of the handing over of power in Dublin Castle on January the 16th, 1922. And it seems to me that that was things that the, I suppose, the people in power in Ireland were relatively comfortable commemorating. More recent events, when things obviously went very much awry 100 years ago, so starting with the shelling of the Four Courts, which was the official start of the Civil War, and then moving on from that, there's really been very little in the way of official commemoration. There was a certain amount around the death of Michael Collins, which is August twenty-two. 1922. So again, almost exactly 100 years ago, as we're recording this, but very much framed around the idea of reconciliation of Fianna Fáil and Fianna I thought, at the event that Béin Nabla. actually, it wasn't an official state ceremony, but the, the Taoiseach and the Tanister were both there, and elements of the army and so on were there as well. Understandably, I suppose, the state is very uncomfortable commemorating the, the murkier aspects of, of what happened 100 years ago. Well, that's true. And also, one thing that
0: we failed to mentioned there in terms of all the different commemorations but it's something that we've covered on the show before is the conflict in the north between 1920 and 1922 around the birth of the northern ireland state or statelet and that does tie in quite closely to everything regarding the treaty and regarding the civil war as well and that's how we framed that episode with Kieran Glennon was about like, you know, the pogroms and the Civil War and how it affected the North. And that was something that hasn't really been touched on at all in terms of commemorations. And you could be somebody living in the 26 counties and still be entirely unaware of what happened during that period in the North.
1: Absolutely. I think also in Northern Ireland, it's not commemorated. It hasn't been commemorated at all either. And I mean, there's a reason for that, which is it's very divisive stuff. You know, you have things like, the Weaver Street bomb where, you know, a number of children were killed you know, and lo- by a loyalist bomb in um, a Catholic area of Belfast. You have the Clonus Afray, so-called, where a bunch of Ulster specials were ambushed by the IRA in a train and, and shot up. And uh, that resulted in a whole load of reprisal killings. You have the McMahon murders where all the male members of the McMahon family were wiped out. The iron Street killings, where again the police broke into a Catholic district uh, and killed a load of people and so on. So, it's there doesn't seem to be much appetite to commemorate that in Northern Ireland, and I'm not surprised by it. But as regards the southern aspect of it, you know, I mean, as we've discussed, I think, on the show before, one of the murkiest aspects of the period is Michael Collins apparently sponsoring a Northern offensive in May 1922 with the aim of destabilizing Northern Ireland and then apparently calling it off at the last minute and allowing some units like the anti-treaty units and the Northern units to go ahead with it. But again, it doesn't seem to that's the idea of a Dublin government, albeit a very nascent one, launching a military offensive of some kind or a clandestine guerrilla offensive into Northern Ireland is not something I suspect that the governments in, in Dublin will be particularly keen to commemorate or to remember.
0: Well, this is this ties into as well how a lot of people are discussing a lot of you know, people on Facebook and people on Twitter and stuff, and these arguments that revolve all the time, all the time about the nature of Michael Collins and what he would have done and what he was planning. And if only he'd lived, he would have led an army on the north and specifically things to do with the Northern Offensive. And as you say there, it's impossible to know because it's so, so murky. And a lot of the records that we would need to truly understand that don't exist anymore, if they ever existed in the first place.
1: I'm not sure that they did. Yeah, I mean, that was Collins' way of working. Like the Northern Offensive thing was partly coordinated with the IRB and it was an attempt to get the anti-treaty IRB people including Liam Lynch back on site and the IRB didn't really keep records as far as I'm aware so yeah, a lot of that has been lost I mean as, as regards to the Northern stuff either it's never been released or I'm, I'm not aware that anybody has the records of the Northern government at that time the very new Northern government of James Craig if they've been released I don't know I strongly doubt it
0: well one of the things we should do because you know a lot of people who would be listening wouldn't be entirely familiar with what we're talking about and mm-hmm wouldn't be that well-versed in the Irish Civil War. Could we put it in some type of context? What are we talking about when
1: we're talking about the Irish Civil War? Right. So to summarise the events of 1922, you have the Anglo-Irish Treaty signed at the end of 1921, which is supposed to settle you know, the conflict in Ireland. And it does this by creating a new state, uh, the Irish Free State, which is going to be a dominion of the British Empire, the same as Canada and Australia. Now, the treaty also recognises Northern Ireland, which had been created the previous year, which had come into existence in June of 1921. Well, that's an important
0: point, isn't it, John? That uh, You do sometimes hear people saying that, like, you know, one of the main problems with the treaty is that it partitioned Ireland.
1: Yeah, and that's not quite true. So what the treaty um says, I mean, another rival myth is that the treaty said nothing about partition and that nobody was interested in partition, which is not true either. But what the treaty said about Northern Ireland was it would have a year in a day to decide whether to come into the free state. And then there would be a boundary commission if it didn't decide to come in, which would sort out the border between them in accordance with the wishes of the inhabitants. And that's certainly what the Irish treaty Delegation thought that they'd signed up to. And of course, we know it didn't quite work out that way. So you have this agreement. It split the Republican movement in the South, well, in all of Ireland, wide open. And um, Kieran Glennon has recently shown that it also split the Northern Republican movement. And then you have a cascade of events. So first of all, it's pa- the treaty is passed in the Second Dull uh, by narrow vote. And then, you know, in a, it's kind of a piece of theatrics actually passed in the Parliament of Southern Ireland just to satisfy the British as well. But the political movement split. Eamon de Valera, the president of the rebel republic that had existed before, refused to accept the treaty. The IRA split, perhaps more importantly, and in March 1922, the anti-treaty elements of the IRA, which was a majority held the convention, and they disavowed the authority of the leaders of the IRA and also of the Dáil to approve the treaty because they said they had sworn an oath to the Irish Republic. The events escalated really rapidly. In between, you have, it seems to be, an attempt by Michael Collins and the anti-treaty leaders to get together to do something about the North in a, supposed offensive in May 1922 but all it does really is unleash a whole load of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland and it's the bloodiest part of the conflict in Northern Ireland uh, which you know to nationalist memory is known as the pogrom but then in the south despite the efforts of people like Michael Collins and Harry Boland and so on the split can't be healed and it eventually it comes to a head the anti-treatyites occupied the four courts and in June after the assassination of Henry Wilson so very senior recently retired British general by IRA members of which allegiance, it's not clear, the British insisted that the provisional government under Michael Collins had to act against the anti treatyites and had to enforce the treaty and had to clear the forecourts. So Collins borrowed artillery and he bombarded the Four Courts, And this was the start of civil war between the pro and anti-treaty factions in the South. Now, as regards all of Ireland, because you're right, we should put it in an all-Ireland context. What this did was end basically the conflict in the North because it removed all these IRA units that were on the border. Northern Ireland, they ended up fighting each other. A whole load of northern nationalists, not all of them IRA, fled south. Quite a few of them ended up in the pro-treaty army, the Free State or National Army. But you had fairly vicious, albeit reasonably low level, I suppose, by you know standards of, of total war and stuff, uh, warfare in the Free State for the nine following months until the pro-treaty side finally crushed the resistance, I suppose, of the anti-treaty side.
0: People might recognise or remember that... Uh on the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the shelling at Four Courts, you were on Morning Ireland with Eve Morrison mm. discussing the centenary of the Four Courts shelling. And how do you think that was commemorated? That was on orty Morning Ireland and it was also, they did a much ex- longer extended discussion with Stewie on orty News 24.
1: How do you think that was handled? Into- yeah, I mean, so Shane McElhattan, who, who was responsible for that, had, had me and, several other people, including Cormac Moore and and Podrick O'Rourke the previous year as well, to talk about the truce of July 1921. And he's been very enthusiastic and written some very good articles on RTE's website about the period. You know, I didn't get any real partisan element of it. You know, I mean, myself and Eve talked about the bombardment of the Four Courts and the opening of the Civil War. And from the perspective of the programme, it seemed to me that purely of historical interest, in some ways I mean, the Civil War, is, you know, Cahal, is a big interest of mine, but in some ways um, it felt less relevant than the truce of the previous year because, you know, the truce ultimately led to the treaty, which led to the state that we have today eventually. The impression was, I suppose, from RT and on the programme was that the Civil War is now seen as kind of a bump in the road. You know, it's a very unfortunate thing that shouldn't have happened, but it did, so we'll just talk about it. But it, I, I didn't get the feeling that it was, there was a white flame of kind of intensity about it still among either RTE or the general public.
0: Well, do you think perhaps that's because the anti treatyite position regarding the, the treaty and the civil war is not given the same prominence and the ideology behind it isn't examined as much or accepted as much as obviously the pro treatyite arguments, because that's what obviously led to the state and the state we're in today. But without really teasing out those arguments, understanding them, not necessarily agreeing with them but really give them some space to understand them.
1: Can we really understand the civil war? Yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, I would definitely have agreed with that. But just, I mean, just talking only about the commemorations this year, what I found is interesting uh, is that people who have spoken to at events who have been more on the Republican end of things in terms of Sinn Féin or the other Republican groups haven't been all that particularly exercised when I've spoken to them. And I'm talking about public talks here about the civil war, you know, um, the people I found much more engaged and much more angry about it were being people from the Fianna Fall tradition, and who seemed to identify with it much more closely, which I find interesting. You know, and they're they're still upset about people who were killed back then and family members who were killed uh, and so on like that. So and that, that's kind of interesting to me. I must say that you know I, I found the people from the Fianna Fall background more angrily engaged with the period than people from uh, I suppose more modern Republican groups or more recent Republican groups. But as regards, yeah, as regards these anti-treaty arguments, I mean, again, I suppose that in the media and the government, you're always going to have a certain bias towards the pro-treaty side in the sense that, you know, the state that we have now is, yeah, is the descendant of the free state and the free state was supposedly getting attacked by these people. I mean, I haven't seen, though, in this year, a rehearsal of all these arguments that we've had previously where, you know, the anti-treatyites were anti-democratic and they tried to throttle the free state at its birth and they were you know proto-fascists and so on like this and people rehearsing this line of Rory O'Connor's where journalists asked him are we to have a military dictatorship and Rory O'Connor said uh, you can take it that way if you like which is a throwaway comment and so on but I don't think that there's been really detailed discussion of either side's point of view and just in this just spe- strictly speaking talking about the commemorations of this year you know I, I don't think that people have wanted to go into it in great depth I don't know, what have, you, what have your impressions been, Colin?
0: No, I think you're right, but it is very important to put things in the context of the period in which it existed. And from the anti-treaty perspective, there was a republic that had been declared that existed. And it may seem like, you know, really delving into the shibboleths of like Republican theology and splitting hairs to talk about things like the second doll and legitimacy and stuff. But these were very real issues at the time. And it can get very dense, the arguments regarding, like, you know, the legitimacy of the votes and like the oaths that uh, TDs had taken. Did they have the right? And this was obviously an, a major issue for the IRA at the time, leading to the split. But you can't sort of just like paper over them. You have to really investigate them to really understand uh, the depth of feeling that went into the Civil War.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, though, that if we're talking about the anti-Treatyites at the time, you have a more fluid kind of conception of it than what came later. You know, later, you had a very rigid kind of orthodoxy within the Republican movement. I think really from the late 20s or 30s, you know, from the time that Fianna Fáil split away. At the time of the, of the split, the feeling in the IRA certainly was, you know, we have a republic, you can't just give it away. We can't take an oath of allegiance to a foreign king. But the thing is, you know, in terms of the later ideology, which is that the second doll was the last all-Ireland doll and it was the last legitimate doll and that it was an, act, an unconstitutional series of coups actually is a quote from Emma de Valera but that the provisional government which was a british appointed body took over and they there was no longer the second doll and that this british appointed body which was characterized at the time as a, by anti-treaty as a military junta that they destroyed the republic and they suppressed the republic and so on the thing is if you're talking about at the time, though, in 1922, like I said, it's a bit more fluid than that. So first of all, if you look at De Valera himself, De Valera first did walk out of the second doll after the treaty vote was taken, but then he was persuaded to come back in. So he sat at the second doll after it approved the treaty, and his hope was that they could talk about the constitution of the Free State. And secondly, De Valera, as many listeners will have heard, was not proposing the Republic or nothing. What, what he was proposing was a compromise called Document number two, where Ireland would be an external member. Of the British Empire. So there's that. I mean, secondly, you know, the IRA Convention of March 1922 actually disavows the authority of the second Dáil, right? So they say, we're not taking orders from the Dáil anymore. We're taking orders from the IRA executive, which we will elect ourselves. And they trace this back to the volunteers being founded and electing their own officers back in 1913. I mean, it does seem to me very odd that people can claim this continuity, between you know, the IRA's tradition throughout the decades and so on, when the IRA itself disavowed the authority of the Dáil in March 1922. So, I mean, you know, people will get upset with me, no doubt, for this, I really don't see how this all hangs together, though, I mean, the idea of the, the continuity between the second Doll and, and the IRA and stuff is really only put together, as far as I'm aware, in 1938, when Sean Russell gets the surviving anti-treaty members of the second Dáil who had never joined Fianna Fáil and got them to vest their authority in the IRA army council of that year i think that the anti treaty act of 1922 have a case in the, in the sense that they they have an understanding of what's happening but the very rigid kind of talk about when the second doll was dissolved which was the second doll and so on i'm afraid i don't have enough lot of time for it, you know the fact is the second doll approved the treaty it voted to approve the treaty and the ira disavowed its authority I don't see how you can get
0: around that. Well, this is an argument as well in regards to the 1920 Government of Ireland Act. And this goes back the whole way through the treaty negotiations when De Valera and Lloyd George and the letters of introduction is that who were the British meeting with from their point of view, that were they dealing with the largest party in Southern Ireland created after the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, or as the Irish negotiators themselves saw themselves as the representatives of the Irish Republic established in 1919 and declared in 1916 and elected at the 1918 general election. There's a constructive ambiguity about a lot of this stuff Absolutely. where how people view themselves and not confronting how the other person views them.
1: Yeah I mean maybe all peace processes have an element of this but there's a very strong element to that where you know like I said the, the doll actually approved the, the treaty and then the pro-treaty members were convened in a small room 10 days later, and then as the Parliament of Southern Ireland and they went through the formality of approving it just to satisfy the British, you know, and then your Republican argument is then you have the provisional government, which is a creation of the British. I mean, one thing I would say is that Arthur Rippert, who was not a member of the provisional government sat in this government because he was the president of the Dáil. So the fact is that there's a fudge all the way along and the treatyites would call it a situation of dual power, which in the end is brought to an end when the treaty is finally implemented. Now, you know, I'm certainly not an apologist for the pro-treaty point of view, and I hope that over the years I've made that clear, but, you know, I really have limited patience for the idea of legality in the situation. Like, it's a, a revolutionary situation, and there's a state being created, you know, there's all sorts of fudges and, and ambiguities in the, the first year, particularly in this period of the provisional government before the treaty is enacted. And I don't really see what good it does, you know, tying yourself up in knots over the supposed legality of the situation.
0: Well, as well, some- something we should mention and we've mentioned in previous episodes as well regarding partition the idea that civil war had nothing to do with partition partition was never mentioned partition was never mentioned during the treaty debates it didn't impact in the the slide towards civil war at all and um that's really not
1: the case is it no no not at all i mean so first of all you know i happened to take a big look at the treaty debates earlier this year and a lot of the deputies in the second all did actually bring up the idea of partition mostly anti-treatyites you know including some pro- pro-treatyites such as Owen O'Duffy and Michael Collins himself but Sean McEntee who was originally from Belfast representing Monaghan brought it up at great length and pretty forcefully and so on and Constance Markievicz and others you know Mary McSweeney and others did bring it up a considerable length. The thing about the treaty and partition of course is that again Collins and Griffith didn't think that they'd signed up to partition. So they were quite convinced and Collins said this during the treaty debates that it was the treaty that would end partition and that seemed to be a respectable argument in early 1922. Now as we know that's not the way things worked out at all, but you know the fact that the partition was a lesser element of the treaty debates does not show in my view that people didn't care about partition. It shows that people thought partition wasn't the main element they were discussing regarding the treaty. They were discussing sovereignty. They thought including the anti-treatyites, some of them, that possibly the provisions of the treaty could be used to end partition or possibly to diminish the size of Northern Ireland.
0: Well, I think as well, as you mentioned there regarding, it's just when you said there about the second Doll and like when the anti-treatyites TDs withdrew from the doll following the the vote, they actually did return later.
1: Absolutely. And I think
0: this is one of the things that when we're talking about, you know, popular conceptions of that period it may come as a shock to people to hear that because one of the things that we always come back to is obviously the neil jordan michael collins Mm. film and like in the neil jordan michael collins film it's really presented that you know the anti-treaties left they never came back and that was like the final step towards civil war and i think a lot of people would have taken that at face value and
1: assumed that was the truth one of the big shibboleths, although we haven't really heard it this year, is that Eamon de Valera started the civil war and he made these inflammatory speeches where he talked about waiting through blood and so on. I mean, de Valera did say those things, but what de Valera first of all said was that he was bemoaning the fact that this might happen. But then, like you said, he went back into the dull and they signed up to this pact that they were supposed to jointly campaign for this election. I would say, and this is just my opinion, that it could possibly have been patched up, you know, without civil war had it not been for these very specific events that happened in June 1922 and especially british pressure and i'm not just playing to the gallery here but i really do think that ultimately it was british pressure that started the, the civil war
0: well that's the case isn't it that we always tend to forget the british role in this hards it may seem to ignore it but the civil war is viewed purely as a war between the pro-treatyites and anti-treatyites without british pressure being mentioned from the start of the process, the threat of terrible and immediate war if the treaty wasn't signed up to, and the pressure from the British government all the way through with regards the proposed constitution, yeah. with the proposals for tough action against the anti treatyites, particularly those in the four courts and um, occupying different barracks around the country
1: yeah and i mean just to be clear for listeners the situation was michael collins and harry Boland, basically on the anti-treaty side and liam lynch on the military side for the anti-treatyites basically had a deal in may 1922 where they could have patched this up and the idea was to have a constitution of the free state that would not mention the british monarch and the british vetoed it i mean they clear very clearly said winston churchill said if such a constitution is adopted, if there is an Irish Republic declared in this way, then we will reoccupy Dublin as a preliminary to further operations, taking back the rest of Ireland. So the British very clearly said, you cannot have a constitution without mentioning the monarch or it'll be war. You know, so the final crisis in June, as we've mentioned before, happened when Henry Wilson was assassinated, on whose orders it's not clear at all, even then to this day, Ronan McCreeby recently has had a book out strongly suggesting again that Michael Collins might have had something to do with it. And perhaps he did i can't say either way but certainly it's in black and white it's, there's a letter from lloyd george to michael collins after it saying our patience is at an end you must now move against the the four courts or we'll do it you know it's it's very simple it's as pl- it's as plain as day now there is a pro-treaty argument because some people on the pro-treaty tradition of Fine Gael, and someone get offended by this and they said the irregulars as some of them still like to call the anti-treaty were defying the government and they were defying law and order and they were going against the results of the June nineteen twenty two election, and there had to be a, this had to be brought to an end by you know the lawful government, etc. Now those people will continue to argue that, and that's fine. But the fact is that military action was only decided on as a result of British pressure, and it's very clear from the archival record that that's the case.
0: Well, there was no empty threat, really, wasn't when you consider. As you've written before, the fact that there was such a large British military presence still in the south of Ireland at that time.
1: Yeah, and not only that, but as as you already know, Kyle, I think Neville McCready, who was the British commander in Dublin with 6,000 soldiers and he had artillery and he had tanks and he had a, an air squadron at what's now Dublin Airport at Collinstown, was ordered to attack the ports. And only McCready came to Dublin and then asked the British government to reconsider. He would have done so. You know, he was actually ordered to do that. So it was certainly no, no, no idle threat at all.
0: Yes, very true, and it does take us on, as you mentioned there, to how the Civil War has been discussed in the past and how it's been written about and commemorated, as we've mentioned there with the Michael Collins film. And I think Neil Jordan had said recently that uh, perhaps he had been too hard on Devil Era. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, you know, maybe, what, nearly 20 years too late um, for Three, Dev's 30, image 30, 30 to a lot of to... people. Yeah, yeah. Is it really 30 years?
1: Well, 96, so 25 odd years, 26 years. Wow. Yeah.
0: Goodness me. Yes, it really is people's popular understanding of the Civil War period that de Valera was in charge of the anti-treaty side, both politically and militarily, throughout the entire duration of the Civil War.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that was kind of the pro-treaty version at the time as well. But it's that fact is, it's just not true. The problem with De Valera's position was that he thought that he could lead the anti-treaty military side, the anti-treaty IRA, by following them, by saying everything you're doing is good, lads, you know, you're upholding the Republic, and at the same time trying to lead them to another compromise, which was his document number two. So even in 1923, he's still talking about that, and Liam Lynch and so on get, get quite annoyed by it at various points. So De Valera has basically no military authority throughout the civil war. And at various times he tries to encourage them to negotiate and to talk peace and so on. You know, they don't really have any time for it, you know. So at the same time, I mean, you know, De Valera at various times, uh, Lynch tells them, look, we have no choice but to do this. We're, you know, this is the military strategy. We're going to destroy the free state's infrastructure and they're going to destroy their ability to collect taxes and we're finally going to bankrupt them. And then, you know, in reprisal to all the nastiness and civil war, the executions and so on, Lynch embarks in this campaign of burning down all the houses of Free state supporters and De Valera says, I'm not sure this is a great idea. And Liam Lynch says, Well, tough look, this is what war is like. At the very end of the Civil War, De- after Liam Lynch was killed, De Valera is instrumental with Frank Aiken in calling it off, very closely working with Frank Aiken to deliver the Dump Arms Order and his famous Legion of the Rearguard message to the anti treaty guerrillas to call off the Civil War. But that was basically his most important intervention. Now, the pro treatyites and their political descendants would probably still say that, you know, De Valera was irresponsible throughout and he didn't take a leadership position and he didn't have the courage of his convictions. And that's kind of another argument. But the idea that De Valera started the Civil War, certainly in the past was very prominent. I haven't heard that much of it this year, actually, but um that was the orthodoxy, you know, in the wake of the Neil Jordan film and the Tim Pat Coogan biography of Michael Collins and so on, that the Civil War was entirely De Valera's fault and he started it and so on. And that's just not the case, I'm afraid.
0: Well, talking about the, the likes of those biographies and stuff we should really talk about how the civil war had been discussed in previous years and my understanding from reading a lot of stuff and a lot of the the books that had been published in earlier years and i say this pre-john regan's book the irish counter revolution a lot of it was very very orthodox pro treatyite it was the democrats and dictators idea there was a good side and a bad side
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the thing is as well, though, it, it's always context, isn't it? It's always the context in which people are speaking. So you had the white heat of the Troubles, the Northern Ireland conflict, and you had Liam Cosgrave, who was the son of WD, who was the head of the free state government for most of the Civil War, saying we have always been the party of law and order, that we defended the state before and we're defending it again. So in the minds of a lot of people, you know, the Civil War was kind of being rerun, you know, in the 80s and 90s and so on. And so, yeah, like, you know, when people were writing about the Civil War, they talked about these undemocratic militarists who were a minority were trying to overthrow the state and the democracy had to be defended. And I strongly suspect that they're really talking about the provisional IRA and the Irish governments of those years. I don't know if you'd agree with me there, Kyle.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, it is very much in that context that the books were written, like um, the, the birth of Irish democracy and all these uh, different things. They're, they're scathing. Yeah. Of the anti treatyite position. And there's no real empathy or understanding of why they would have even um, contemplated going down this route in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, the high point, if that's the right word of that stuff, is like you said, uh, Tom Garvin's Birth of Irish Democracy. And it's an amazing book, astounding book in some ways. I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. Uh, it's so the Birth of Irish Democracy says the anti treatyites were, I think, that he calls the public band so that they were the descendants of the secret societies and if you like criminals of the 19th century and that they had no conception of civic society or law and order and they were entranced by militarism and that they had to be put down for Irish democracy. And so, and it talks about how, um, you know, there's all sorts of kind of amazing lines in it where the, the anti treaty guys talk about and um, their people suffering and so on going to prison and being executed and so on uh, in the struggle against the British and the civil war. And, and Garvin is saying, but no one had asked them to do this, you know, So this idea that mm-hmm. they were in some way something totally removed from the rest of society. And there's lines like uh, Garvin at one point says that there was no threat of war from the British, which is flat out wrong. It's, it's just wrong. And secondly, you know, you mentioned John Regan there and Regan's contribution has been very interesting. And he talks about the absolutely anti-democratic or undemocratic way, I should say, not anti-democratic, undemocratic way. In which the civil war was carried out, particularly in its early months by the pro-treaty side. So yeah, I mean, you know, the the orthodoxy, particularly, I think, in the 80s and 90s, was really high, this very hardcore pro-treaty line, you know, that was echoing many of the things the pro-treaty partisans said at the time, filtered through the filtered through the much more recent lens of the, the Northern Ireland conflict and its its echoes in the South.
0: Yeah, as we were discussing um John M. Regan, and one of the things he covers from time to time is is collins himself and the nature of collins real in the provisional government and it's something you've covered as well on the irish story website there's been such a deification of collins as this like you know manifestation of everything that was great about the revolutionary period and this isn't to disparage him and what he's done but it's a very one-dimensional view of collins and when you look at the civil war It's a lot more complex than that. And it does bring up a lot of questions about his authoritarianism and the idea that if he would have lived, the Irish Free State would have evolved into the state that everyone believes would have been the fantastic Irish state rather than what it became. has to be challenged in some ways when you look at his behaviour during the Civil War.
1: Yeah, so Regan's argument goes, first of all, you know, Collins appointed himself as commander-in-chief and then he told the government, which is a fairly, you know, authoritarian thing to do, a fairly high-handed best thing to do. He made himself commander-in-chief, then he created a war council of three, him and Richard Mulcahy and Ona Duffy, to run the war effort, you know, and, and he told the government about this. So clearly, you know, the army is the senior partner here. And then the doll was supposed to meet on July the 1st, but the doll was not allowed to meet. This is the third doll elected in the election of June 1922 because he's afraid that the there might be disruption that the military action might have to be stopped and it's prorogued three times I think you can correct me on that because you've written about it until and it appears that Collins wanted to prorogue it to suspend it indefinitely until the civil war was over so there's that and then secondly which I mean I think you know people like uh Tommy Tormey who works in in Trinity College I think these days you know has made the argument that these are just war measures you know they were temporary measures and I I think that that's this is a reasonable argument although we, we can't know But the much more ominous thing I would feel that John Regan also covered, especially in his book Myth and the Irish State, was the role of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and Michael Collins as the president of it. And Michael Collins writing a new constitution saying that not only will the Brotherhood continue to exist post the Free State, but the Irish Republic, to which the, the members of the Brotherhood swore allegiance, the Irish Republic virtually established, you know, goes back to the 1860s that that would continue to exist and he would be the president or the president of the Supreme Council of the IRB would continue to be the president. And that is extremely ominous. Now he said it would exist behind the formal institutions of the free state. Now this is in the context of Michael Collins again seeing the treaty freedom to achieve freedom and so on. So it's in pursuit of Republican objectives if you like. But the fact that Collins would see himself in an unelected capacity as the real governor of the country, at the same time as being commander-in-chief of the armed forces. You know, we don't know, of course, what way it would have gone. And uh, in public, Collins always committed himself to parliamentary democracy. But these are potentially kind of ominous steps. And we will never know what they would have led to, because, of course, Collins died at the nablau on the 22nd of August.
0: Well, this obviously ties into the whole Democrats and dictators and Democrats. One side had democratic legitimacy and the other side did not. The third doll that was elected after the, the failed pact election didn't meet during Collins's lifetime, and the Labour Party TDs who had to, who were committed to taking their seats, unlike the anti-Treatyites, um, had actually agreed to resign their seats en masse because uh, they said we can, we can't continue on with this situation where the the doll is prevented from meeting, and um, it does raise serious issues that if. The doll was not allowed to discuss a civil war in process or have any democratic oversight over how the war was being fought. Uh, what was the point of having a doll? You know, was it going to be probed indefinitely or until the country had been pacified?
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, that's not quite what happened because after Collins died, the doll was finally allowed to meet and so on. But I mean, one interesting thing though to think about as well is that the IRB continued especially in the senior ranks of the National Army or the Free State Army, led now by Richard Mulcahy, although I think Sean O'Meara might have been the president, but Mulcahy is the most senior figure as Commander-in-Chief of the Army. And they're really only ousted from the top, very top ranks of the Army in 1924, after this episode, where part of their own army you against them. So, you know, the whole Democrats and dictators thing is, I think, an outdated idea, and it's a product of a particular time. It's part of Civil War polemic of 1922, but also, like I said, filtered through more recent history. I think, and I don't think we should discuss the civil war in those terms anymore, you know, so I've argued before that, you know, the second doll did approve the treaty, I don't see how that's controversial, and that the IRA, the army at that time, disavowed it, so this is not a good step, but there's no anti-democratic ideology on the anti-treaty side, I don't think, and on the pro-treaty side, by contrast, you know, there are these very ominous kind of authoritarian instincts that get bypassed at various stages. So Collins getting killed, and then the IRB getting ousted from the army, and also the IRB's enemies, another faction called the IRAO, Irish Republican Army Organization within the army, also got ousted at that time. But they too had talked about a putch, you know, a coup against their own government in 1924, So there are definite anti-democratic instincts on the pro-treaty side as well. I don't think you can discuss the civil war in those terms as an ideological war between Democrats and dictators at all. I don't think it makes any sense.
0: Well, in the context of discussing the Dal not meeting, and this is a major issue that will be interesting to see if this is discussed in detail, because it really does tie into the nature of the state and what the state was to become, and also a lot of issues regarding how the Civil War was fought and some of the issues within the Civil War is one of the first major things that's discussed when it all eventually meets is the postal strike mm. of 1922. And this is when, like, you know, the postal workers went on strike and it was one of the first major industrial disputes. Now, there was obviously smaller industrial, other industrial disputes going on throughout the 26 counties during the Civil War and other issues regarding Land, land occupations, and agrarian unrest, and you know, you had the nature of you know that that radicalism in small towns and and bigger towns as well throughout the country during the War of Independence, the early days, of the Civil War. But the response of the provisional government was telling, and the way in which they treated that uh, industrial dispute is very telling in many ways to how the uh, how the state
1: would develop. Yeah, well, you're you're the one who's written about this column, I mean, but y- you know the. The postal strike was deemed to be a threat to the state's, you know, essential infrastructure, and um, which it was, I suppose. And you know, the army was sent out to break the strike and they fired shots at it and so on. And, you know, in the following year, you know, you've all these agricultural strikes, and a whole set part of the army, the special infantry corps, is set up to deal with them when they're sent down to places like County Waterford, which is put under martial law after the Civil War against the anti-treatyites to put down the strike. So, you know, absolutely in the early days, the pro-treaty government and the likes of Kevin O'Higgins are very explicit about this, you know, they're imposing law and order and they're imposing what they call civilization um, and the rights of property and so on. So yeah, certainly that's a part of the early, early part of the state, yes.
0: Well, as well, we have the views of people like Liam Mellows, obviously one of the people who was executed, one of the four famous executions, and his view of how the Civil War would develop or what sides that they represented, not just pro and anti-treaty, but like one side being the, the establishment, the large farmers, capital, imperialism, and on the other side, the anti treatyites representing the workers, and maybe a socialist revolution if they were successful. What do you think of that argument?
1: Yeah, I don't think a great deal of it, to be honest. You know, I mean, it's it's something that became very important in later years. You know, because Pat O'Donnell popularised the things that Liam Mellows had written in November 1922 before he was executed. Of course, the IRA correspondence at the time, which I've looked at for researching my book about Civil War in Dublin. First of all, like the ideas originate with the Communist Party of Ireland, who you know, take the anti-treaty side and there's a very small number of them imprisoned, but they meet mellows and they seem to have influenced them in this way. And, you know, the ideas are taken to Liam Lynch and Liam Lynch says, well, you know, if this gets people on our side. So they talk about nationalizing industry and they talk about distributing land to the small farmers and so on. And Eamon de Valera looks at it and just goes, no, no way, you know, not, we're not doing this. And Lynch goes, yeah, OK, no, fine. You know, it's it's not it's not a central part of their makeup at all. I mean, in later years, people like Padre O'Donnell would say that the Civil War was, you know, the, the lost revolution, to, to borrow a phrase from another book. I, I don't really think that, that it was, you know, I, I really don't. I don't think that they were that far apart in terms of social origin and in terms of ideology, the pro and anti-treaty sides. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't a great deal of class conflict in the Civil War and that the pro-treaty government didn't think explicitly in terms that they were imposing a particular kind of order on the society, because they did. I would say that the anti-treatyites did not think and large that they were fighting for any kind of social revolution.
0: But I wonder, will will those issues be discussed at length in terms of commemorating the Civil War? Or will there be space created to discuss those
1: issues? Yeah, I mean, there should be. Like, you know, in in our day, like Irish society, it seems to me is at a kind of inflection point. It seems to me that the younger generations feel kind of very disenfranchised these days, especially by the cost of housing and the cost of renting. And so the issues of authority and the issues of what states should do in terms of, organizing the economy and how much they should intervene these are very big issues in the ireland of 2022 you can project them back to the civil war i mean i the republican version or a republican version the kind of left republican version has been that the civil war was like this a kind of a class war and pat o'donnell has a lot to do with popularizing this idea again i don't really think that that really represents the anti-treaty rights they're starting to look at something like that in 1923 when they start campaigning for the first election after the Civil War and they start allying with Labour and so on. And there's an element of that about the early Fianna fall as well. It's not what caused the Civil War. I don't think it's what the Civil War was fought over. In terms of talking about it, yeah, I mean, one of the things that surprised me is that, you know, Sinn Féin or other left Republican groups have not been very keen on talking about that aspect of the Civil War, that it was, you know, the, that the Civil War was the counter-revolution and that, you know, that the, the true revolution was was cut off or something at that time. I haven't seen them talking about it very much. You know, it hasn't really been much part, much part of the, the discourse this year, I don't think. Maybe I've missed something, Carl.
0: Maybe I've missed it too. I haven't noticed Sinn Féin really discussing it at length either. Whether that is something to with the timidity in some ways of Sinn Féin because they're so close to the, the goal line in terms of the next election with the growing popularity of Sinn Féin and the growing unpopularity of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, that they're trying not to frighten the horses in any way by drawing any parallels with uh, that period.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I don't really see the benefit in, in in trying to refight the Civil War at this time, you know, and and, and depicting people as, as deadly enemies like they were back in 1922, 23. I don't think that's necessarily a very healthy step. So I can understand that. I mean, the other thing, though, I mean, in terms of commemorations is, uh, of course, the, the death of Michael Collins. You know, bell and and that was one of the only big aspects of commemoration. And that you know, there was there was programmes in RTE about that, and there was a great deal of discussion about who shot Michael Collins. Unlike the issues you're talking about, I don't know if it has a great deal of relevance today in political terms, but it does seem to have brought up a lot of interest though in what happened at Bell Nabla 100 years ago. But
0: well, yeah, and that, that's the thing as well. And because of just the extraordinary events that Griffith and Collins died so close to each other like the two men most associated with the treaty i cause and running the new provisional government the centenary of griffith's death passed by with much less huplad and colin's death but yeah. you can't really separate you can't really separate either of them out in my mind because they're they're so closely identified and they're so important
1: to the new treaty regime we could and we probably should have a whole program about or the griffith actually because he's quite an interesting character um, but, you know, the thing about Collins, it's, it's mostly focused on how he was killed and who killed him, basically. And, you know, there's been a lot of people who've been very interested in this lately, and they've been thinking about the various possibilities, let me say, about who killed him. I mean, for me, this is very straightforward, you know. Um, in, in fact, when you look into the, the details of the ambush, it only becomes more straightforward, you know. So Collins went down to West Cork. Uh, he was investigating the money the anti-treatyites had seized from the customs and excise in Cork when they had occupied Cork City. He was meeting various pro-treatyites in West Cork, which was, to be honest, a foolish thing to do because it was where the anti-treaty side had massed after their retreat from Cork City. He drives into an ambush. The firing breaks out. Collins decides not to stop, not to get in the armoured car where he would have been safe. Then when the firing slackens and some of the anti-treatyites are apparently getting away down the lineway, Collins leaves cover, runs after them and shoots at them and then gets shot in the head. So, you know, people are looking for, it seems to me, for... A conspiracy that just isn't there that you know it seems to me perfectly straightforward what happened to him.
0: Yeah I was always amazed by that and as you say there it's only become more pronounced now the more I read about it that the actual events of bail and Blah that it's really not that shocking that he was killed. It's remarkable really In some ways that people's concept of Collins, again, going back to, you know, the Michael Collins film, but the popular conception of Michael Collins is he's a figure who was, you know, like an Ernie O'Malley character that he was going on raids and rallies at at, uh, uh, attacking police barracks and stuff like that. But his experience of actual gunfire and being in ambushes and stuff was pretty low to non-existent outside of the Easter Rising when he was in the GPO as Mm. an adjutant to Joseph Plunkett and reckless doesn't begin to describe his behavior at Bale and and you know we we had Joseph Connell on before on a previous episode you were discussing with him Michael Collins and he has obviously has a a previous military background that that Connell had where he was discussing in that context And he didn't seem at all surprised that Collins lost his life at bailing of law.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it was a terribly reckless thing, to to be honest, to to do. I mean, the role of Emmett Dalton has has come up a bit. And, you know, we can talk about Emmett Dalton either here or later episode. But Dalton told him to drive like hell and get out of the ambush site. And that's what he should have done. And then he would have been alive. And and none of this would be discussed today. There's a few things I mean, I just want to comment about because like the, the, the speculation is that the British somehow had him killed. Uh, because he was too hardline on the north. Now, it is true that Collins had a hardline attitude on partition, but he'd already begun to kind of walk it back, you know, by the time he was killed. But just the facts of the case are that the ambush was laid by the anti-treatyites. Then We have the report, which was made by Liam D.C., who commanded the ambush party to Liam Lynch. And he says, this is how the ambush went down. It was one casualty. We found out later it was Michael Collins. You have Liam Lynch uh, writing to various people saying, you know, this explaining to him like Ernie O'Malley and others, this is how the ambush went down. Uh, it's unfortunate we have to kill michael collins but that's the situation he put us in basically is what he says so the anti treatyites at the time are are not shy about saying it was them and and people speculating that it was emma dalton and there seems to be an assumption among some people that it's an accepted fact that emma dalton was working as an agent for the british now dalton was no saint and and neither was his his brother charles on the pro-treaty side there is no evidence that i know of that he was working for the british in any capacity you know, so the idea that he would have killed Collins or had any motivation to do it seems to me to be you know, a wild theory and I believe what it comes from, Sean Boyne had an article recently about this biographer of Dalton, that it actually comes from the 1960s, by which time you know, attitudes had changed and mellowed and Collins was being uh, rehabilitated, I suppose, for the first time. Various IRA people who had been at bail nabla 40 years before said, well, we were only shooting in the general direction, but there was four British officers around him and apparently It dates from that time, this idea that it was part of an elaborate British conspiracy. And people have focused on things like there was no medical report and so on. Well, he was examined by three different doctors. And the last one, who was a military doctor, found an entry and an exit wound, which indicating a rifle bullet. You know, and then people have been speculating that it was destroyed in 1932. When, of course, come in and nail the pro-Treaty Party, lost power to the Fianna Fáil government. Now, again, I've been in the military archives a lot uh, for my sins. There is a destruction order and it says destroy uh, records of military courts martial uh, informants and other things which can lead to loss of life Destroy them by fire, and it lists them out and so on. It doesn't say anything about Michael Collins. Okay, so I don't understand really where all, all the speculation is coming from, apart from, like you say, people projecting onto Michael Collins all their hopes for the things that were never achieved after Irish independence.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't know where the basis for this belief is. It's it's very curious, not um, discussing the the assassination itself, but this belief that Collins would have been that like there's a goodie and a baddie and Dev single handedly turned the country over to the church and held it back and destroyed everything and, and just made it uh, Ireland a terrible place and Collins was like this forward thinking democrat loads of ideas and if he would have lived it would have been completely completely different it's, it's, it's curious to me I mean this, uh,
1: this is a result of late 20th century culture I think your popular culture but what, one of the interesting things this year I've noticed is that like you know if this was 10 years ago conspiracy angle I suppose would have been the devil era had Collins killed which as you know is very strongly suggested in the, in the, the movie the biopic about michael collins i haven't heard much of that this year i mean just but just on that i mean devalera was in the area but what De Valera had done was to try to urge the ira the anti treaty the ira to call off the civil war in august 22 after they'd lost cork city and lynch and dc and others turned them down flat so you know the idea that that De Valera lured collins to an ambush we haven't heard a lot of it this year but again i, I don't see any basis for it to be honest
0: no and another uh Tedious online argument that pops up from time to time, particularly recently. Like, the, was this real or was I imagining it that Finnegale had rented out loads of cinemas across the country to show the Michael Collins film? I'm afraid and that's true.
1: That is quite that true. Is
0: true. That wasn't some <laughs> fever dream I had. I'm afraid they're, they're giving out uh, Finnegale badges and stuff like at it. And then on the other side, you have people who are furious that Finnegale could have the temerity to claim Michael Collins or even claim any association with him, which is true. Finnegale was fine, founded long after Collins was dead. But it's not that big of a stretch to say that they have some claim over.
1: I mean, it's. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say about that one in some ways. I mean, obviously, Michael Collins was not a Fine member. On the other hand, the yeah. idea that, that he wouldn't have contemplated such a thing. Most of his closest comrades did, of course, join Fine you know, Richard Mulcahy and W.T. Cosgraven and so on. So Oona uh, was the founding, member, founding leader, of course, um, a man who achieved notoriety in his own right, so we, it's not outlandish to suggest Michael Collins would have been a member of Fine Gael. I mean, you know, and Fine Gael also had had various. It's not quite a hardcore Republican ring, but certainly people who had been senior in the IRA were in the early Fine Gael, you know?
0: Yeah, it's 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 more so this this idea that um, the perfect Collins would not have had anything to do with the blue shirts and O'No Duffy and these people. And don't you dare taint Collins memory by associating him with Fine Gael. And a lot of that with uh, the general unpopularity of Finnegale, especially at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, if, if not Finnegale, then who? Like, it's doubtful that if he would have lived, there would have been a Finnegale in the first place. But if not Finnegale, then then who? Who exactly would Collins have been associated with? These are all his closest political followers and, and uh, comrades.
1: Yeah, and I mean, Finnegale yeah. is
0: pretty much a, a death cult to Collins and O'Higgins for its first couple of years anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Griffith. I mean, and Griffith. You know, one of the interesting kind of online arguments, and it says more about twenty twenty two, is people insisting that Collins would have stayed a member of Sinn Fein. You know, because he was he died as Sinn Fein TD, which I guess is true. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an impossible one to, to ever resolve. I mean, I suppose it does again show the, myth, the the power of the Collins myth, though. Like you know that people project onto Collins whatever they want. I mean, what's new now is that people who would consider themselves Republicans or left-wingers, they want a bit of the Collins myth, which they wouldn't have wanted in the past.
0: Yeah, it, it, that is true. And um, the, he is viewed as, as the great incorruptible. And I don't sound like I'm disparaging um, completely, but he is, the, the real Collins is a lot more interesting as a flawed figure than this like plaster saint.
1: Of course. I mean, you know, the thing is, it's a cliche, but it's also true that, you know, he was cut off. In his prime when he was a young man he was 31 going on 32 and therefore we do not know what he did what he would have done it's very simple uh, so he could have done a lot of things good and bad and we just don't know you know but it's part of the mystery and part of the mystique i suppose that he was cut off in his prime like that yeah, of course we can't speculate i mean one thing i will say about collins just because we're discussing the civil war Kahal is collins did i think want to avoid some of the things that happened afterwards so there was an incident in july 1922 in County Leash, where there was a skirmish, and two quite high-ranking National Army officers were killed, and the troops involved wanted to execute the, you know, the anti-treatyites who they captured afterwards who had shot these these officers, and Collins wouldn't let them do it. And it was the same thing during the fighting in Dublin in July 1922, where there was a number of attempts by the Free State or pro-treaty troops to take the last anti-treaty positions on O'Connell Street in these hotels, in the Hammond Hotel, and so on. And Paddy O'Dalley, who later on, of course, got up to some some grim things in the Civil War, claimed that there had been a number of false surrenders. Stop me when this sounds familiar. And he wanted to shoot the people involved. This is in July 22. And again, Collins wouldn't let him do that. So Collins does seem to have been a restraining influence on his own side in the Civil War. And it's possible he could have avoided some of the worst things that happened afterwards. And of course, the people who were closest to Collins, apart from his kind of political and high ranking comrades, were the squad you know, his former IRA intelligence department. And after he died, like not before, but after he died, they embarked on a whole series of killings in Dublin and in Kerry and in elsewhere. You know, some of them, it seems, you know, po- possibly directly in revenge for the death of Michael Collins. So two FINA members who were killed on August 25th, three days later in Dublin, and uh, an anti-treaty IRA member. That That's short-term speculation. I do think that Collins might have avoided, you know, the, the spiral into which the, the civil war, fell afterwards of this, you know, atrocity and reprisal and so on.
0: Well that's something that's always followed, that always followed uh, the likes of Kevin O'Higgins with the execution orders and Rory O'Connor and um Richard Mulcahy when he later became leader of Finnegale, Gael uh, Dirty Dick and the 77 executions and
1: uh, things like that, even though that wasn't quite an accurate figure. Um yeah, well it's more the execution it's more, more yeah. yeah. I mean, that's we might close out by talking about that, you know The executions are going to be the most difficult part of the Civil War to commemorate, I suppose.
0: Well, that's it. As we're recording this now, it's it's early September, and we're we're not quite at the the business end of the the season in terms of this centenary, but we're going to have to deal with the Bally CDs and you know executions and you know as you mentioned there with the Nafina boys in Dublin. That was a documentary you were involved in as well on RTÉ a couple
1: of years ago. And that's, they're incredibly grim. Terribly grim. I mean, so, you know, dark deeds were done in the Civil War. I mean, just, you know, to put it in context, so recently we've much more detailed kind of information on casualties and so on in the Civil War. And, you know, by the standards of other civil wars, as people will go on at great length, you know, the standards of Finland or other places that they, they weren't terribly great so it's probably around one and a half thousand to two thousand killed by our standards that that's a lot but, you know in within nine months but the free state soldiers lost considerably more killed in action than the anti-treaty side did so around eight to nine hundred free state soldiers were killed of whom around you know 550 died due to enemy action there was a lot of accidents and so on um on the anti-treaty side you know you have about 500 volunteers killed but a minority of them, I think possibly, you know, less than half of them were killed in action. Most of them were executed or killed in reprisal. So even though that's a lesser figure, a smaller figure than the National Army soldiers who were killed, far more of them were killed in either executions or reprisals than were killed on the other side. And that really that really tainted people's perceptions of what had gone on, I, I feel, in the Civil War. And it's what makes it really difficult to commemorate because, yes, 81, I think, or 83 is, is the most recent figure by Sean Enright, were official executions, which which is to say that they had, there was some sort of legal process. A lot of them didn't. So first of all, you know, the Mount Joy executions of December 1922, which were appraisal, the assassination of Sean Hales' TD, were just summary executions. They just took people who were untried out of prison and, and shot them. So t- four senior IRA members, Mellows, O'Connor, McKelvey, Barrett. But like you said, there was probably in the region of 150 just killings of prisoners. And, and like you mentioned, Ballyseedy and Kerry is one of the most spectacular examples, but there, there's... That's only one particular instance. So that scale of kind of illegality and, you know, basically just summary justice by the state is difficult to talk about. You know, it's, it does undermine the legitimacy of the, of the early free state. Now, the fact is that there's an amnesty afterwards, and this is calling them wiped out by an act of oblivion and the idea is no one is going to talk about it ever again even now 100 years on is it's quite difficult i think for for the irish state to talk about
0: yeah it will be it will be very very interesting to see because like you know you've been involved in quite a few panels and conferences over the past couple of months regarding the civil war but you know that doesn't really permeate to a large extent to the general consciousness you know, um, that's mainly within academia, or people who are really, really interested in Irish history will watch the stuff online or uh, go to these conferences. It's more so, you know, the the popular history books, the TV programs, documentaries, and stuff like that. And like there has been documentaries made in the past about Ballyseedy. Will, will that be shown again? There have been a lot of things that have been covered over the last last couple of decades but will they be re-shown again like there is there was quite a few documentaries in the past made about figures like O'Higgins and stuff like that that have never been reshown, as far as i know will these all be getting airing now and a lot of that has to do i suppose with ortiz archive policy where they do keep things very well locked up and it's hard to get access to them unless there's an old vhs knocking around and somebody puts on youtube
1: yeah, I mean that 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 documentary on Ballysiddy is kind of interesting. It's not without its flaws. I think there's a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence used in it. But I, I mean, I've been in the archives in recent years, before and after the pandemic, looking at the files from Kerry, and it's it's very grim. And the thing is, you, you, the army reports are you know consciously lying. You know, they're about what happened in Ballysiddy and elsewhere, and they are very undermining of the idea that this is a state that's imposing the rule of law and so on like that. Because you know the the troops in Kerry are engaged in and I don't want to be sensationalist here, but they're basically kind of war crimes. You know, they're killing prisoners all over the place and lying about it. So it's it's, it's going to be very difficult, you know, to, to bring up. I imagine the state won't want to. I mean, certainly people who are interested in history, though, I think, you know, being silent doesn't do anyone any good. Um, hopefully we can discuss these things kind of calmly and rationally. But they are very, very ugly incidents and they do taint the early history of the state. You know, they can't get around that no matter what political persuasion you come from.
0: That was something that always uh, stuck with me. Like as we discussed here before, with the uh, burn orders uh, as coming and ale left left government in nineteen thirty two. A lot of stuff in the archives, particularly around Kerry, is so bad. It makes you wonder what was burnt if
1: that was left in. Exactly, and no, I mean, and you have to read through the the lines a little bit of of the stuff in Kerry, like the army reports, because, like the reports come in of like for people who are not familiar, what happened was this: there was a booby trap bomb in a place called Knocknagashel, on I think March sixth, nineteen twenty three where five National Army soldiers, including two officers, were killed. And in reprisal, you know, eight prisoners were taken out of the jail in Tralee, and they were taken to a crossroads, Bally City outside of Tralee, where they were blown up, and one of them was blown away, Stephen Fuller, and he wasn't killed, he lived to tell the tale. Now, and then they repeated it with the two other brigade areas in Kerry, at cahar Savine and Countess Bridge, near Killarney. And then there's various other kind of summary executions. In total, I think you're looking at 25 Kerry Republican prisoners killed in March 23 alone. Now, the reports come in in the archives and they're just, you know, again, I don't want to use sensational language. They're just outright lies. You know, they say um, they brought the prisoners out to clear a mine laid by the irregulars themselves and they blew it up and we prepared nine coffins, you know, because they didn't know that Fuller had survived. So they piled all the remains into the into the coffins and then they said... Later on, it emerged that one of the irregulars escaped Stephen Fuller. It is determined that he is now insane. You know, that's what it says. And, it, you know, he's spreading this insane, this crazy story that, that we were killing prisoners, you know. And then they, they come in again and again. And then, you know, there's various other things that their bodies found beside the, on the side of the road. And, and they say, well, the irregulars are killing their own because they're trying to surrender and so on. It's fairly grim. And like you said, it does make you wonder, you know, what, what the stuff that was destroyed would have said.
0: It's almost like um, Central American counterinsurgency in the 1970s and 80s.
1: I mean, to be fair, like the, the death squads that you're talking about in Central America were killing civilians all over the place, you know, thousands of them.
0: Yes, we didn't have that. But like, no, we uh, didn't.
1: And, and, you know, thank God the Irish Civil War wasn't like that. Actually, there was far fewer civilians killed than in the War of Independence, You know, where which was a lot more bloodthirsty from that point of view. And there was hardly any informers you know, by the IRA in the Civil War, as opposed to the 200 odd who were killed in 19 in the first six months, basically in 19, of 1921. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of, let me put it this way, in terms of the functioning of the National Army that was supposed to be a law governed army enforcing lawful state authority, let's just say it left a lot to be desired. Now, you know, people can argue, well, the irregulars, to use again the abusive term that I do not use, but they were burning down houses and they assassinated TD and they tried to assassinate several others. And this is all true. But in terms of a government which is, as I said, claiming that it is establishing the rule of law and lawful government, it looks bad because certainly their forces were were guilty of gross breaches of the law and also, you know, of the customs of war and so on in 1922
0: and 1923. Yes. Now, to, to get on as well, as, as I mentioned there before, with the different conferences and panels that have been going on. Can you describe some of the ones that you've been involved in?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to keep track now. I mean, the big one was the one in University College Cork in UCC, which was in June, and there was a large amount of government funding available for that, and there was, I think, over 200 speakers, you know, so it was difficult to keep track. There was a great range of kind of scholarship exposed there, so the effect of having so many speakers, though, unfortunately, was you could only get to so many. So I've tried to watch some of them back. But there's a lot of very interesting things. There was no spirit of acrimony there at all, though I have to say. I mean, I I may have, I think I probably missed some of the panels, but I mean, I I did miss ones on executions and reprisals and so on. I I think they did happen, but there was really not a spirit of partisanship and of acrimony there, I have to say. Now I've spoken at other ones. So I spoke at the commemoration of Harry Boland and Scary. So Harry Boland, who... Attempted to patch up the dispute in early 22, ended up losing his life. He was shot in scaries when free state troops were trying to arrest him in July 1922. Interestingly, there was quite a bit of heat at that, you know, from family members and descendants of Harry Boland, because I suggested that he they didn't intend to kill him, you know, because they wounded him and he was taken to hospital and he died two days later. There was lots of assassinations in the Civil War. They don't look like that. Um, people weren't necessarily happy with that. There was a lot of heat. And as I said, the people um, from a Fianna Fáil tradition seemed to be more angry in some ways about this than people from a more contemporary Republican tradition. So I spoke at at an event which was called Counter-Revolution or Civil War with Brian Hanley, and I was expecting there to be a lot of he did that and there really wasn't any at all I mean people were were very detached and um, I'm not sure how Republican the audience was but they really weren't you know not that they weren't interested they were interested but not they weren't terribly angry about it and I've spoken of, you know I've spoken about the burning of the big houses which is such a, an emotional motif of the period and such a visual thing and a couple more talks about that coming up and I've spoken about Michael Collins and so on Um, there's a certain there's been a certain amount of emotion the most I saw was at the commemoration of Harry Boland I've got to say up in Scaries.
0: Yes uh, something in the, the Neil Jordan film—it's—it's it's very yes. badly portrayed,
1: misportrayed. Well, you know what's interesting because we're talking about the Neil Jordan film, and in the context of commemoration and and so on, and and public memory, I happened across the 1990, I think, movie *The Treaty*, starring Brendan Gleeson. Have you seen that? Yes. Uh, god, it's... not not off long while. You can get it on YouTube now, the whole movie, yeah. and it's so much better than the Neil Jordan movie. Like the very the intricacies of the negotiations and the fact that Collins was briefing the IRB all the way along. Are put kind of front and center in it, and the the thing of um the negotiations on Ulster and the Crown and so on, which people like Ronan Panning go into in great detail. But they have they have it in this TV movie at, correctly, you know. It's an awful lot better than than the Michael Collins, the Neil Jordan movie of 1996, which is just a kind of a Hollywood ramp, really. You know, it's it's very interesting. I was surprised at how good it was. And Brendan Gleeson is also a very good Michael Collins. You know, he really he really captures you know this kind of dynamic energy that Collins had better than Liam Neeson had because Liam Neeson is a kind of, you know, an operatic figure. You know, he's a very calm kind of presence. And Collins wasn't like that. He was, you know, a driving force of energy and so on.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering now what the rest of the the concluding
1: part of the centenary events are going to be like. Well, I think, you know, judging by what we've seen so far, that the Irish government is really just going to wish they weren't happening, you know, (laughs) because like they don't have anything to game out of it, I don't think. In a way, though, it does occur to me with the current state of play in in the, the North. And, you know, they just have a new Prime Minister elected as we're recording this. In Britain, mistress and she says she's going to throw out the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, it might be that the centenary of the Boundary Commission, which will be in 2024 and 25, will be more controversial even than the Civil War because it's more relevant. And and for those you know not familiar, we've talked about this before, Cahill and, and you've you've worked on this yourself. You know, the Boundary Commission was supposed to redraw the border, and it ended up basically you know recommending very minor revisions, and in the end, it was buried altogether by by both governments. It, it, it seems to me that would be an explosive centenary even more so than the civil war
0: yeah it, it's really is a very very interesting event the boundary commission and wonder should really be everyone to look into as if the potential it would have had to alter irish history in a, a major way but at the end of the day it, it didn't move an inch in either direction but like as we discussed liz trust there and the relationship between ireland and Britain in the context of these commemorations i, I believe what's probably going to happen is it's going to be completely ignored in britain in the same way that yeah. the past 10
1: years of commemorations have been completely and utterly ignored in Britain. I mean, there has been a limited amount of engagement in Britain. You know, Michael Portillo and so on have made TV programmes about it. But, you know, it's we, we've talked about this. I mean, we, I think we've been talking about this for 10 years, go you know, going back to the home yeah. Road crisis, which is a massive crisis in British politics. A
0: massive crisis, not just in Ireland, but like the whole of the UK. And yeah. it passed off without, without a mention. Without, without
1: a whimper, in yeah. I mean, and, you know it's not without analogies for certain things that have occurred more recently in some ways, you know, in terms of the Conservative Party flirting with extra legal stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, it is a weak point of, of modern Britain. And I mean, okay, you know, modern Britain has a population of 70 million, and they think so what, you know, this con- little country beside us, but like, that is actually an anachronistic point of view, to use some historical jargon. So Ireland was a central part of British politics, you know, it, they, it really messed up you know, their politics from the 1880s until the 1920s. And even into the the late 30s, obviously, you'd you'd another round of negotiations, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of that era. And uh, to be honest, especially with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the current, the endless negotiations with the European Union, they would be much better off knowing a bit more about this. I will say one thing, though, which is kind of interesting. During the various Brexit deals which didn't go through Parliament, this is before COVID now, so people might have forgotten about it, several Conservative Party uh, figures speaking in favor of various deals, whether May's deal or Johnson's deal, quoted Michael Collins on the treaty, and they said, "You know, this is not the ultimate freedom; it is freedom to achieve freedom." And I thought that was kind of interesting, you know. So there is <laughs> there is some sort of um, there is some sort of knowledge in British political class, apparently.
0: Long may it continue. Long may it continue. We'll see more well, let's and more. I hope it starts we'll our, our, it, But anyway, long <laughs> may it start. Okay, and on that note, so you know, to wrap up in terms of you know the discussion. There's a lot of interesting things that could happen and should happen over the next couple of months. There's a lot of areas that hopefully will be covered in depth and a lot of interesting writing and, you know, discussions, panels and podcasts and documentaries, hopefully that may be made. So in terms of like, you know, the social aspects of the Civil War issues to do with class and social and uh, agrarian conflicts, the labor movement. Women and the Civil War. That's another very important issue that we haven't discussed. But I'm sure there's a lot of really, really good historians Uh, have already spoken about it and are going to speak about it more and write about it more, particularly in regards to, like, you know, the treaty and the Civil War. That was a major discussion at the time. The role women were playing in the anti-treaty movement and other things about violence against women. Things to do with the um, atrocities that happened and see how they will be commemorated. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff there to to think about. And we should revisit this in seven or eight months' time and see how it panned out.
1: Yeah, yes, indeed,
0: we should. Okay. So, and just to remind listeners, again, of course, two books you may want to read by our esteemed John Dorney, One Civil War in Dublin, and Peace Before the Final Battle, which go into the Civil War in a lot more detail, especially... Dublin and Civil War, which I think people would really, really enjoy. So thank you very much for listening. It's been very enjoyable getting back to doing a podcast again after so long. And hopefully we shall start doing them a lot more frequently in the future and get back into doing it. So until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It really does help. And if you could share the show on social media and let people know about it, that really, really helps as well. To shamelessly once more plug the Patreon that John has set up. We'll put the link in the show notes. So it's the Patreon for the Irish Story website. And that would be fantastic if you could do that so until next time my name is cothill brennan and on behalf of myself and my co-host john dorney thank you very 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 much for listening Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast, because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.